This is New Hope Legacy. Aloha, and thank you so much for joining us on the New Hope Legacy podcast, Sermon of the Week. Today we have Pastor Trenton Johnson, who will be starting a new series called Father Forgive Them, Part One. Enjoy. each one of you are here. Everybody joining us online, I can't see you, but I'm glad you're with us as well. We have quite an online family all the way from the Big Island, uh, different communities. We got folks joining us almost every week from Oregon, from Colorado, from, uh, let's see, where else? California. I'm sorry if I missed you. Comment in the, in the video or shoot me a message and remind me, and I won't, uh, won't forget you next week, but we're glad you guys are with us. So glad each one of you are here with us in the room today as well. Today we're going to be launching into a new series on the run-up toward Easter, and that feels very strange to say. We're approaching the Easter season already. But we're going to be starting a series called Famous Last Words. And as I was reading through the Easter series, or the, the Easter story rather, over the last couple of weeks, something really sort of jumped out at me about the Easter story. While Jesus was hanging on the cross, there were seven specific things that Jesus said. There were seven statements, seven critical things on his mind as he breathed his last. And in that agonizing moment, there were some things that were so urgently on his mind that he had to get them off his chest and say them before he breathed his last. And this is what sort of struck me as I was reading through the this story of the crucifixion and the resurrection and all this, is that if it was that urgently on his mind at that most horrific moment, then how critical is it for us to hear and understand his words? What was on his mind? What did, what did he want to communicate? And how does it impact your life and mine today? So that's what we're going to be starting into today is this, sort, this uh, series, Famous Last Words. And looking at these last statements that Jesus made while on the cross. You know, last words are significant. We have an expectation that in those final moments of somebody's life that, that there are, there's meaning that is communicated. There's something significant to somebody's last words that they utter. Um, Harriet Tubman, many of you will know from school and from American history. And her, her last words were, swing low, sweet chariot. This lady that was so influential in the, the Underground Railroad and all the amazing things that she did, and she had that hope of eternity in her heart, swing low, sweet chariot. She knew where she was headed in eternity. That was her final words on this earth. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the, the author, some of you may have read Sherlock Holmes, and um, his last words as he was laying on his deathbed, he looked at his wife of many years and simply said, you are wonderful, and breathed his last Oh. There's meaning, there's significance to these final words from people. Some of you will remember a gentleman named Todd Beamer on September 11 in the year 2001. He was on an airplane that we all have heard a lot about, Flight 93. Todd Beamer and some other passengers on the airplane decided not to let their airplane that they were riding in be used the same way that the other two airplanes had already been used. And 
They organized a uh, resistance against the hijackers that had taken over their aircraft. And on a, a recording, Todd Beamer's last words recorded were these two words, let's roll. And they did. A few minutes later, that airplane crashed into an, a farm field, if memory serves me correct. They weren't willing to let the same atrocity be carried out with the aircraft that they were on. And, and that was the final words that Todd Beamer has become known by. Let's roll. Let's do something about this situation. Elvis Presley is uh, often quoted in his last words. He's somewhat famous. He looked at his fiancée and said, uh, I'm going to the bathroom to read. And you thought your husband spent a long time in there. <laughs> As I was growing up, I, I enjoyed reading stories about Robin Hood and, and tales of great bravery and daring do in, in uh, old England. The story has been told, I'm not quite sure if it's true or not, but the story has been told of Robin Hood laying there on his deathbed. He's, he's very sick. He knows that his time is coming soon. And so he looks at the, his faithful followers and companions that have gathered around him. And he says, bring me my bow. Bring me my great long bow that I have fought with. And he said, this bow has saved my life. He holds it there. He's barely got the strength to lift it up. He said, this bow has saved my life. It's, it's kept me fed. It has, it has defended our country. And I'm going to fire it one last time. And my only request is that you bury me where this arrow lands. And the story has it that they, they put the bow there in his hands and an arrow. And he drew back the bow with all of his strength and let that final arrow fly. And, and his uh, companions followed his last request to the very letter. And they say that's why he was interred there on the top shelf of the bookcase. His aim was just a little bit off for that last arrow. But today we're going to be starting to look at these final statements, the famous last words of Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. And our big idea today is that Jesus' love confronts our ignorance and freely provides the solution that we cannot achieve. Jesus' love confronts our ignorance and freely provides the solution that we cannot achieve. And I encourage you to take notes as we go through today. It's going to be a short one, I promise, today. But I encourage you to take notes. If you need an outline, raise your hand, and one of our ushers, I know, will be happy to get that to you. But we're going to be starting today in Luke chapter number 5, starting in verse 17. If you've got your Bible with you, go ahead and open it up. If you don't have your physical Bible, boot up the uh, app on your phone. Nobody will know if you take a peek at your notifications at the same time. That's okay. We won't judge. Luke chapter number 5, we're going to start in verse 17 says this, on one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, 
I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Somebody dug a hole through my roof and lowered somebody down. I think I would say that as well. We have seen extraordinary things today. Can you imagine being there that moment with Jesus? I just, my imagination sort of runs wild as I read these stories in Scripture. And I, I'm imagining Jesus there trying to have this conversation with whoever was in the room with him. We don't know how large of a house it was, but we know that there was a huge house party going on. Have you ever been to a party that's so crowded that you can't even hardly force your way in through the door? That's what was happening here today. And, and I'm sure that they tried an easier route before they defaulted to the roof. So if the people were that, that packed in there, that congested into the house, I can only imagine the sort of chaos and, and, and clamor and, and everything that was going on. And I can imagine the, the conversation going on as Jesus is sort of raising his voice maybe above the, the murmur of the, the crowded people there in the room with him, and suddenly there's this scratching noise. And then there's this, this sort of chipping, tap, tap, tap noise. And we don't know exactly how the roof was constructed, but likely it was, it was wooden poles with some sort of clay on it is typically how they would have been constructed in those days. And I can imagine Jesus sitting there or standing and talking with the crowd, and all of a sudden this dust begins to sort of filter down from the ceiling. And then, then chunks of mud and plaster begin to rain down. And now people are, people are trying to see what's going on and how much of the roof is going to come down on top of me here. Everything, everything just begins to devolve into a little bit of chaos. And then the faces you see peek through the roof and the, the paralyzed man begins to be lowered down. I can only imagine the reaction of the homeowner as he's standing there. He's invited Jesus into his house, and, and now he, here he is watching his ceiling being demolished by these very kind, considerate friends of somebody who needed help. And the high winds a couple of weeks ago here on the island at Palm Frond blew down onto the roof of our house and broke the skylight at the center of our roof. And I can vouch for seal flex tape. It is as good as they say on TV. I had to climb up there and patch it up with seal flex until we can get the new skylight in there. I don't like having my roof damaged, especially not if it was intentional. If I see somebody climbing up on my house to go do some damage to something, sorry, but your friend's going to have to wait. Jesus will be out in a little while, I promise. Your buddy's just going to have to wait his turn, folks. Sorry, but that's how it is. And I can only imagine the, the shock on the homeowner's face as this all takes place. This had to be a moment that was etched into the mind of the, the paralyzed man forever. He had a living memorial, a reminder, a daily reminder of what Jesus had done for him and the healing of his legs. But it's fascinating to me that he was actually unaware of his need. See, he was brought to Jesus that day as the paralyzed man, not as the man who needed to be forgiven. Nowhere in Scripture do we see him described as Four men brought their friend who needed to be forgiven, and they, they lowered him down through the roof. They brought their paralyzed friend. That was the need that they were aware of. That was the need that he saw in his own life. There they came. There he was lowered, not really even truly knowing what he was needed, what, what he truly needed. You can imagine looking at Jesus. Jesus, I need my legs healed. Would you, would you please? I believe you can do it. Would you please heal my legs? 
You can imagine Jesus responding back, awesome, uh, your sins are forgiven. Uh, no, no, Jesus, you didn't understand. See, this right here, these legs, they don't work. That's why I'm laying down. That's why there's a hole in the roof. Maybe you missed that part, Jesus. But there's a reason why my friends lowered me down here. It's because these legs don't work. Jesus says, no, I got you. Your, your sins are forgiven. See, Jesus addressed the issue that this man didn't know that he even had. And that's what he does in your life and in mine. Have you ever had a problem that you didn't know about? Maybe, maybe trouble was brewing and you didn't even realize quite how bad things were getting. Who here has been bit by a snake before? Anybody ever been bit by a snake? We got one. Okay. We'll swap stories after service. I'd love to hear. I've been bit by a snake once in my life. I grew up in Oregon. We've got all kinds of fun critters running around there. We've got the big, uh, you know, carnivores, bears and wolves and coyotes and mountain lions and all sorts of fun large critters. But we've also got the small wiggly kind that really will make your heart just stop for a minute. I remember the day I was out fishing along the bank of a creek and I was down sort of on the lower part here about this far below the edge of the creek staying down along the water. And I turned around to pivot and put my hand down and climb up on the bank and just as I put my hand down a six-foot snake came uncoiling out from under my hand. He'd been hiding in the bushes down in the grasses there and he went one way and I went the other at equally high rates of speed. I didn't get bit that day. I've, I've caught snakes before. I've played with them. I've, I've interacted with them. Never, never been bit any of those times. But I remember the day that my dad and my brother and I were out fishing along a mountain lake in Oregon. My brother was probably around six or seven years old, if memory serves me right. And he had wandered off down the shoreline to go throw rocks in the water and do other helpful things while my dad and I were fishing. And he came back around the corner, and I looked up just in time to see him coming back toward me with this piece of string in his hand, except the string was moving, and the string was coming back up toward his hand. And I realized that in his six-year-old wisdom that he had gone out to catch himself a snake, but see, the way you catch a snake is you grab them right behind their head where they can't turn around and get you. He didn't know that. So he goes and grabs the easiest part of the snake to grab, the tail, and he's, he's carrying back his trophy to show all of us, and he doesn't even realize that this snake is coming right back up at his hand to bite him. I dropped my fishing pole and took off running across the shore and got there just in time to grab the snake on the fly and get it out of his hand, and it turned around and got me instead. Thank God it wasn't poisonous. It got my heart rate going for just a minute, but it was a little garter snake, actually, if anybody's ever seen those. Totally harmless. He was just irritated that he had been snatched up off the shoreline where he was actually trying to digest a frog, we just discovered. It's never fun having your dinner interrupted. He was in a little bit of a bad mood. And then I had a couple of fang marks in my hand to show for the day. My brother didn't even know that he had a problem. Here he goes along carrying his trophy. He thinks everything's good. He, he, he knows that he needs to, you know, throw some more rocks and catch some fish and so forth. But he doesn't even realize the problem that he's walking around with. I've done the same thing in my life. Too many times to count. Maybe some of you all have been driving down the highway and seen the car driving the other direction without their headlights on. You flash your lights at them and, hey, buddy, you got a problem. Let me tell you about this issue that you have that you don't even realize. But there's a cop right back there. I pass. Let me help you. You try to point out the problem. They're oblivious. Jesus' specialty was dealing with clueless people. You ever notice that in Scripture? 
Jesus seemed to attract clueless people. He, he seemed drawn to them. He would seek them out, and they seemed to seek him out. In Matthew chapter 25, we read the parable of the sheep and the goats. Jesus is speaking. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but Jesus is talking about these two groups of people when, when he returns, what it's going to be like. And he talks about these two groups of people that he's sort of sorting out and separating from each other. Two different groups, two different destinations. One group to spend an eternity with God, one group to spend an eternity without God. And as he's sorting these two groups of people out, he's, he's talking to them about what they had done on earth. He says, when I was hungry to the one group, you fed me, and you didn't. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink, and, and you just walked right on by. When I was naked, you, you clothed me. And you just kind of covered your eyes and walked the other direction. And, and what's fascinating to me about this whole story is that both groups of people were equally clueless. Did you ever notice that? Even the folks that, that spent eternity with God, they, they also responded and said, when did we ever do that to you? When did we give you a glass of water, Lord? He said, well, when you did it to the least of my brothers, you, you did it to me. It was, it was commendable that they had done that, but, but they were clueless. Very different outcomes, but both equally unaware. In John chapter 4, we read the story of Jesus interacting with the Samaritan woman there at the well. They're interacting and chatting, and she sort of expresses surprise that he would ask her for a drink of water. And Jesus said to her, if you only knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for, for living water, and I would give it to you. In other words, she had no idea who she was talking to. She was, she was clueless in that situation. We see this in Luke chapter number 24, the, the two on the road to Emmaus after Jesus was resurrected. And here he is walking along this, this road and chatting with two travelers who were walking the same direction with him. And he's expounding from Scripture and revealing mysteries from God's Word to them and just pouring wisdom into them. And, and the whole way through, they had no idea who they were talking to. Didn't even recognize who he was until he had already left. Jesus seemed to search for and, and pursue clueless people. If Jesus Christ was here on the earth today, we might each be able to think of some places that he could find some clueless people. Um, I won't ask you to, to name places or, you know, things, but maybe we could all identify places that we hang out online or uh, communities of people maybe that we spend some time around. We go, yeah, that, I, I've got some clueless people for you, Jesus. I, I got some. If you want them, I can point out where they are. The truth is we're all sort of in that same boat. We fast forward from this moment where the, the man is lowered down through the, the roof to Jesus. We fast forward to Easter week and Jesus goes through his accusations and, and his trial and the beatings and everything that he suffered through. And eventually he's led out of town to this place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And there he's crucified. The crucifixion happened during Passover week. There were thousands upon thousands of Jews in Jerusalem for the Passover. This was a big deal. This was the annual pilgrimage that many, many of them would make. And so there were massive numbers of people in Jerusalem that would have witnessed the things happening to Jesus, that would have been there at the time of his crucifixion. And I can't tell you that I have any proof in Scripture, but just 
Imagine with me, if you would, for a minute, that the paralyzed man from, from chapter 5 that we just read about, imagine with me that he is also in town for the Passover. He's also made the pilgrimage now that he can walk. This was probably a, a pretty special Passover. Imagine with me that he's there and he's listening as Jesus is crucified and hearing the conversations and hearing the blows of the hammers, the nails are driven and and he's there and listening as Jesus begins to speak from the cross. Luke 23, verse 27, Scripture says that a great multitude of people followed him. Very easily could have been this paralytic man in the crowd. But Luke 23, starting in verse 32, says this, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. These are the first, last words of Jesus Christ. Father, forgive them, for they, do not, for they know not what they do. Father, they're clueless. They don't even realize that they have a problem. And by the time they realize that it's going to be too late, please, please forgive them. And I can imagine this man in the crowd, the artist formerly known as Paralyzed, maybe we could call him. No fans of Prince in the house, I guess. The formerly paralyzed man. I can imagine him there in the crowd listening. He's going, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. I remember I remember that conversation. I remember what he said to me because I remember the day that I was clueless too and, and I didn't realize the problem that I had and, and Jesus forgave my sin. I remember that. And it's significant to me that the first thing that Christ seems to say there on the cross is that his redemption doesn't begin with a list of his expectations and demands. In the final words that Jesus gasped out on the cross, he, he doesn't start with all of the high expectations and, and things that he expects from humanity. You got to do this. You can't do that. You got to do this on that day. You got to dress this way. He, he, didn't, he didn't go into any of those things. What did he do? He said, Father, they don't even know that they have a problem. Forgive them. Begins with, him stepping into our sinful ignorance, offering forgiveness for the problem that we don't even know that we have. See, when I talk with somebody that I got to work out some stuff with, have you ever had to work out some stuff with somebody? And this is usually how it goes is with a text message or maybe an email or a voicemail message that says, hey, we need to talk. You ever gotten a message like that? I don't like getting those messages. I've, I've tried not to send those kind of messages much anymore, but that's usually how we as humanity approach it. Hey, we need to talk. We sit down and we begin to hash things out, hopefully face-to-face -face and not through text. If you were thinking about doing that this week, please don't. Just put it off until you can talk through it face-to-face, -face, whatever it is. But we sit down, we start working through whatever the issue is, and, and hopefully we can find a place of reconciliation. We get to the end of the conversation and we say, I forgive you. We had some stuff we had to work through, but, but we talked through it. I, I think I can see your heart. I hope you hear mine, and, and I forgive you. 
That's the way we as humanity approach this thing called forgiveness. But see, God's forgiveness is a little different. See, he starts the conversation saying, I forgive you. Now, can we talk? He flips this whole dynamic around. Christ's final words begin with a declaration of his love and and, an announcement of his forgiveness. It's as if his entire mission here on earth was this preemptive strike against the issue that we didn't even know that we had. In fact, Romans 5.8 says this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait to have the conversation. He didn't wait to have that, that interaction with us. He preemptively solved the issue and offered forgiveness for the problem that you and I didn't even know that we had. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says this, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. If something's entrusted to you, it means that you have some responsibility to carry in that process. Last week, I shared with the team in our volunteer meeting right before service, I, I shared with them about a good friend of mine that I had known for a number of years during my time working out at the resort. And I hadn't talked with him for a couple of years. He, he had sort of dropped off the map. He was a businessman that, that I had a, a good interaction with, somebody that I respected a lot. I think we were able to build some mutual respect over the 10 years that I worked out at the resort. And last week, I happened to bump into him right here in the church parking lot. I was going about my business, and, and God just sort of dropped him right in my path. And he and I got to chat and talk about his family and, and his mom, who was likely to pass that same day. And it turns out she actually did pass away that very day that God brought him across my path. And I had an opportunity to pray with him and to, to point him to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that our hope is not in our accomplishments or, or our wealth or our possessions or the things of this world, but our, our hope is found in Christ for eternity when this life ends. Three days later, I got a call from another mutual friend out at the resort that my friend had died of a massive heart attack that day. It hit me. and still kind of hits me to share about this. He didn't know the issue that he had. He didn't know that he had a heart problem that was, that was going to take his life. He didn't know that the clock was ticking down those last few seconds. The sand was running out in the hourglass, if you will. He knew about the issue with his mom. He knew about the issues that he was aware of, but, but there was an issue that he didn't know about that was about to bring his life here on earth to an end. But, but God knew. God knew what was about to happen, and and he looked down and said, you know what, I see what's about to happen, and because of my love for you, I'm going to bring these two worlds back across each other's path to share my love, to share my truth with you one more time, because I see your problem even though you're clueless right now. Jesus Christ is all about connecting. He came to connect heaven with earth. He came to to connect sinful people with a holy God. He came to connect his infinite payment with our unpayable debt. He's, He's all about making these connections. He's all about connecting the infinitely wise and all knowing God with people who don't have a clue. This is what Jesus Christ came to this earth to do. And that includes me as one of those clueless people, just so we're clear. I heard it said once that forgiveness is giving up the hope of ever having a better past. 
I'm still sort of chewing on that one, but it's kind of interesting to think about. The idea that we can't change what has already happened. But see, Christ's forgiveness, it doesn't hinge on changing what has already occurred. His forgiveness is about dealing with the thing that has already occurred that we don't have the ability to change. There on the cross, Jesus said, Father, they don't know what they're about to do. They're not going to be able to undo it by the time they realize. So, Father, forgive them. He came to reconcile mankind to the Father, and He's given us the same mission to bring people to reconciliation with God. He didn't come to save the ones that are all self-righteous and think they're holy and have their act all together. Jesus Christ said, the, the whole have no need of a physician. Who did He come for? He came for those that are messed up, those that are mixed up, those that are completely clueless in their situation. That's who Jesus Christ came to reach. And his words required nothing there on the cross from those to be forgiven, not even awareness of the problem. Father, they don't know what they're doing. His words remind me of another man that may well have been there in the crowd that day as Jesus hung on the cross. Let's take a look at this. We... I heard what he said. I heard all too well what Jesus told that man. That, that thief that he was hanging next to. And you know what? It was drastically different than what he told me. You see, the day that I encountered Jesus, I dropped to my knees right in front of him. He had my respect from the start. You see, I wasn't looking for a handout, okay? I explained to him that I had done the hard work. I just needed to know, was there something that I was missing? Was there, was there some good thing that I needed to do in order to inherit eternal life? And you know, sell all that you own. That's what Jesus told me. Sell it all, and you'll have treasure in heaven. <laughs> I have right. You see, I was always taught that salvation is a reward for a life that is filled with good works. It is not a handout that you give to people that can't muster up up. They can't muster up enough character to earn it themselves. My wealth is a clear indication of the favor that rests upon me from God. I had asked about eternal life and this, this disgusting shell of a man, he's the one that gets it? Jesus told him the day he died, he would be in paradise. This man couldn't bleed a drop of goodness that he hadn't borrowed. No, no, that he hadn't stolen from the righteous man that he's hanging next to. He was a thief and I'm the one that is treated like I've been robbing God all along. I offered to do what I needed to do. This man offered nothing. All he could do 
was ask for mercy. And, and that's how he got salvation. That's how he got eternal life. It was just, it was just given to him. Like, like it was a, a gift. Mark 10, starting in verse 17, we read these words. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasures in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. This man saw Jesus as a good teacher. It's the phrase that he used to describe him. Not, not merely good at teaching, but a good person who teaches others to do good things. This young man was proud of his achievements in life. He, he came to Jesus. He said, hey, hey, look at my achievements. Look at, look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at, look at what a righteous life that I've lived. Surely that's enough to earn me eternal life. And you, you, good teacher, you teach people to do good things, so, so what good thing do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What am I missing? He missed something critical, not in the list of things that he had or hadn't done. What, what he really missed was about Jesus' identity. See, he saw Jesus merely as a good teacher. Can you teach me to do good things, Jesus? but he missed seeing Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. He came with all of his qualifications and achievements, but the one who knew everything saw through the, the layers of his heart knew that there was one area, one issue that he still had, some part of his heart that had still not actually been surrendered to God. We've probably all been in that place also somewhere in our life. We can, we can roll out the list of our good person credentials. Did you see how I treated that driver that cut me off in traffic last week? I'll, I'll pat myself on the back for that one. Did you see how many times I took out the trash at the house and, and how many times I did the, the, the dishes in the sink? I even threw in a load of laundry. I mean, Jesus, if we want to talk qualifications, I have done really, really good this week. Haven't murdered anybody. I thought about it, even prayed down some fire from heaven, but you... I think you just said not yet. I, I hope that wasn't a no, Jesus, but I haven't murdered anybody, haven't committed adultery, haven't held up a bank, I haven't cussed out anybody, in, oh, I, I haven't held up a bank. Um, I'm really doing good, Jesus. But the heart issue remains. See, the problem is that what we need is redemption, mere, not merely good advice. 
The need that you and I have is not merely good advice to make more good decisions. What we need is redemption from somebody that can pay the price that we can't pay. That young ruler missed the point that day, but somebody else that was present that day at the crucifixion got it. It finally clicked for him. When we read in Luke 23, starting in verse 39, Luke 23, verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The second famous last words of Jesus Christ, today you will be with me in paradise. Who is this man next to Jesus on the cross? Some have referred to him as the thief on the cross. That, that may be part of it. He, he may well have stolen. But that's not a totally accurate way to describe him. See, if he was merely a thief, then the word that we would read in Scripture would be the word kleptes, which really means to steal. If, if he was a thief, this is how he would be described. But that's not the word that Scripture uses to describe him. Instead, we read that he was kakorgos. I can get it. Kakorgos. It doesn't mean a thief. It means a worker of evil. It means, it means somebody that's actively working against the good of society. It, it literally means somebody with a malignant disposition. This guy was a seriously messed up, evil, wicked person who was actively engaged in doing evil, wicked things. He wasn't just shoplifting an occasional loaf of bread from KTA because he was hungry. He had no excuses and he didn't even try to give any. He knew who he was, not, not merely a thief, but Kakorgos. And he knew it. Jesus' first final word was for those who didn't know that they needed him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. His second final word was spoken to a man who recognized his problem, but he had no solution. Have you ever gotten yourself into a situation you couldn't get yourself back out of? Maybe if you've lived on the mainland and you, you took a wrong turn on an icy road and realized that it hadn't been plowed yet and you get stuck. You got yourself into the situation, but you'd have no way to get yourself back out. I hope you had some cat litter in the back of your car. If you ever travel on the mainland winter, there's a, there's a tip for you. Keep a bag of kitty litter in the back. You can put it under the tires. Throw that one in for free. Every one of us somewhere in life has gotten ourselves into a mess that we couldn't get ourselves back out of. I remember when I was about five years old, we were living in Hastings, Nebraska. It's an amazing place to live if you like corn and corn and corn. The local saying is it, it's the, the, best, uh, the best part about living in Nebraska is that you can watch your dog run away for three days. Yeah, he's still going. It's that flat if you've never seen it. When I was about five years old, we were living in Hastings, Nebraska, and I remember playing out in the yard one day with my sister, who was a few years older than I, and we had a cherry tree in our yard that we liked to climb in and swing from the branches and, and have a lot of fun out there. And we had a number of our friends from the neighborhood over one day. We were all playing tag and whatever, whatever game we had made up, and my sister climbed up into this cherry tree. 
Well, what she didn't notice was that my dad had just pruned the cherry tree. And my dad's a great guy. He just doesn't have a green thumb. I love you, Dad, but you know it's true. <laughs> he pruned the cherry tree, but, but this limb that he had cut off was still sticking out from the side of the tree about that far. And as we were playing out there, my sister decided she was done playing in the cherry tree. She went to jump down, and she didn't realize the back of her clothes had got stuck on that branch. And she took a leap, and the branch held fast. And there she hung three or four feet off the ground, arms and legs wailing, screaming like a fire, a, a, a fire alarm. My mom finally heard her and uh, came running out of the house. We had to get a couple people there to lift her up to get her unhooked from the tree and get her back down. It was amazing. It's like best moment ever as a younger brother to see your older sister have something like that happen. It was incredible. Still touches my heart. Love you too, Ruby. <laughs> she got herself into a predicament she couldn't get herself back out of. The problem was clearly identified, but she had no way to solve it. That's the way the sin works in our life. By the time we, reach, by the time we realize that we have a problem, it's too late for us to solve and there we are in the middle of our mess with no way back out of it. There hung the criminal next to Jesus, this wicked, evil man, in agony, dying, ashamed, knowing what he had done wrong, and knowing that there was absolutely nothing that he could do to get out of that situation. He had nothing to bargain with. He had no court of appeal that he could turn to. That was it. This was the end of the road for him. The rich young ruler had come to Jesus with a list of his qualifications and achievements and everything that he had done in life. The criminal hung there on the cross with nothing to bargain with. But the difference was he recognized who Jesus was. Something connected in his heart in that moment as he looked over and saw Jesus, King of the Jews, with the sign over his head there hanging next to him. And something clicked in him that said, wait a minute, there's, there's something special about this guy. I, I know what criminals look like. I, I can look in the mirror and see that every day, but there's something different about this one. You recognize him not merely as a good teacher, but as the king. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He recognized that there was there was something on the other side of what Jesus was going through. There was, there was power there that he had never seen before. And he had nothing to offer. He had nothing to bargain with, nothing really even to hope for except to just throw himself at the mercy of the king there on the cross next to him. And Jesus said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. See, that was the thing that Jesus had come to do. Not merely to give advice on how to live a good life. He didn't come to earth to perform marriage counseling or to give financial seminars or to start a social club or to help people in crisis. I mean, there's a lot of good things that should be done that, that we have a privilege of even doing through this church family. But the one thing that Jesus Christ came to do was, was not any of those good things. He came to redeem people who could not redeem themselves, to forgive people who were past the point of forgiveness, who were in a mess and couldn't find their way back out of it. I don't think it was by chance that Jesus' final words begin with those two statements, Father, forgive them. 
They don't know what they're doing. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. See, God's love is preemptively at work on our behalf long before we know that we even have an issue. He confronts the sin in our life, not because he's angry with us, but because he wants to forgive us. And so he confronts the problem that we don't even know that we have convicts us of sin. The sin problem that we have is beyond any of our ability to solve. It doesn't matter if you're a criminal with a rap sheet longer than my arm, or maybe you've never once broken any laws. You're a model citizen. You have limited your car to not even go above the speed limit. Maybe that's you here today. I'd prefer not to ride with you very far down the highway if that's the case, but maybe that's you here today. Maybe you have just done a spotless job of, of being a model citizen all of your life, and yet, yet there's something in your heart that's still not been fully surrendered to God. Every one of us have that thing, whatever that thing is in your life. That one issue that Jesus Christ came to confront, but not only to confront, he came to forgive and to redeem. With his dying breath and final words on the cross, Jesus is telling you it's not about what you can achieve, it's about what my love for you has already achieved. I encourage you to ask this question today. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? What truth are you speaking to my heart? What are, what are you trying to tell me? Maybe there's an area of sin in your life that you've not really been willing to admit or to confront. Maybe God's brought something to your mind that he's saying, hey, there's something that needs to be taken care of here. His purpose isn't to condemn you, but to redeem and to forgive Maybe life has you feeling sort of confused and clueless right now, maybe with questions of faith or life decisions to make. That's who he came for, is clueless people. Congratulations. Maybe you've been trying to achieve and prove your righteousness to God, and maybe you've begun to realize today that that's never going to work out for you because you can't achieve anything great enough to prove your righteousness to God, and that's not what he asks of you. It's not about what you can achieve, but what he has already achieved for you. Maybe today he's drawing your heart to throw yourself at his mercy, to ask for his forgiveness and to accept the gift that you and I can't earn. You know, it's interesting to me, this, this second phrase that we looked at from Jesus, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. That word paradise, we could all sort of mentally conjure up an image of what paradise would look like, but the literal translation of that word means the king's garden. The king's garden. It was a word that was borrowed from the Persian empire that Jesus used there. He said, today you're going to be with me in the king's garden. See, God created us to live the garden life, if you will. He created a garden for us where we could interact with him, where we could converse with him and, and experience the full wonder of his presence. And sin separated us from that thing. But, but there on the cross, Jesus Christ looked at this criminal who had no hope of redeeming himself. And he said, you know what? Today you're going to be with me in the king's garden. You recognize me as the king and, and I've got a garden prepared for you. I'm going to restore you to the thing that I originally intended you to enjoy. If you're listening here today and either here in the room or maybe even online, and, and you've never come to that place with Jesus. 
Maybe you've never recognized him as the king before. Maybe you've just sort of viewed him as a historical figure with some really good ideas. Well, he was that. He was a historical figure. Let me tell you, he had some great ideas. You ought to, you ought to read through them in Scripture sometime. But he's so much more than that. He's not just a good teacher. He's, he's the king. He's the king that came to earth to pay the price that you and I couldn't pay to restore us to paradise, the king's garden. And if you're, if you're in that place today that maybe you're realizing there's more to this Jesus guy than you ever knew before, then I invite you to just pray this prayer with me and, and begin that relationship with him. Say, God, I acknowledge you as king, and I'm sorry for the things that I've done that aren't pleasing to you. I'm asking you today to forgive me. I don't have anything to bargain with. There's nothing that I could do to earn your mercy, but, but I'm asking you to be merciful to me. I'm acknowledging you as the Lord of my life, and I'm choosing from today forward to live my life according to your ways, to submit to your plan. I'm acknowledging you as my authority, as my king. And I thank you for forgiving me and for the price that you paid on my behalf. If you prayed that prayer today for the first time or maybe for the first time in a long time, then we as a church family want to walk with you on this journey. If you're here today, then, then your journey hasn't ended yet. You're not hanging there on the cross with Jesus breathing your final breath that we know of. None of us is promised tomorrow, but if you're here today, then, then there's something still in this journey for you that Christ has you on. We want to walk with you on that journey as you learn to make him the Lord of your life and to walk in his footsteps. For those of us that are walking with Christ, that have given our heart to him, I encourage you to be part of this ministry of reconciliation that we talked about a little bit ago. God gave me an opportunity this last week to speak some truth into the life of my friend, not knowing that he had really just hours left to live. That same opportunity God's going to give in your life, not necessarily somebody that's going to breathe their final breath, but God's going to give you an opportunity this week to speak some truth, some love, some mercy into somebody's life, maybe even to, in a loving way, confront some sin, not to bring condemnation, but to point people back to the one who already fixed the sin problem. Let's be bold to take those opportunities as they come to live out that ministry of reconciliation to which we've been called. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the price that you paid for my sin. Thank you for your mercy, for your forgiveness. And I thank you that even though there's nothing that I could do to earn your love or your mercy, that I don't have to because it was a gift freely given. I pray that you would confront the things in my life that need to be confronted so that I can walk in your light, so that I can walk in your grace and in your truth. And I pray this week that you would give me opportunities to speak that truth into the life of others. Help me to recognize those opportunities when you bring them up. And Lord, I pray that you would give me boldness to speak out and to not waste a single moment speaking your love and your truth into those around me. Bring us back safely next week, I pray, to continue learning and growing in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go with God, new hope. Once again, thank you so much for joining us on the New Hope Legacy podcast. 
If you haven't done so already, check out our website at www.newhopelegacy.com. It's a great way to find resources and connect to our Ohana. If you haven't also done so, check out our podcast. And that's anywhere you get your podcast. Once again, thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next week.